Costs to originate keep rising, even with more technology in the industry. The problem is the core platform. A new LOS can re-architect the process around data, not humans moving paper files. Vesta has built this LOS, and you can learn more at Vesta.com. Welcome, everyone. My guest today is Managing Editor James Kleiman to talk about the current economic model of mortgage lending and whether that's sustainable for the next five to 10 years. First, I want to say thank you to our podcast sponsor, Truve, for making this episode possible. James, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, good to be back. Good to have you back after you were gone for a week uh, for a beach vacation, although a beach vacation with a toddler. Yeah, it's not really a vacation when you take a two-year-old anywhere. It's just going to a new place <laughs> with a two-year-old, but uh, it, it, it was lovely. It was a lot of fun and um, for those who don't know, I uh, <laughs> I am very pale, and my son is even paler. And so the fact that we were able to go nine days without him getting a sunburn is, I, I think, probably my greatest accomplishment as a parent. It is amazing. It is unparalleled. I myself am pale, have several pale children, and that was, you know, that was always the struggle. So, well, we're so glad you're back. And, you know, I know it's been fast and furious, but we wanted to talk about something that happened on social um, over the weekend while you were gone. L let's dig in there. Tell, tell me what we're looking at. So for those who don't use Twitter, I, I know some people call it X now. I refuse. It will always be Twitter to me. There's a, a guy on there. His name is John Downs, and he's a top loan officer in the Washington, D.C. area, so kind of Maryland, Northern Virginia. And he had this really excellent thought-provoking thread on February 16th, so late last week, and he said, mortgage loan officers, it is quite possible that the economic model of mortgage lending has changed and past experiences will be nothing like future results. That begs the question, should you change careers? In my 25 years, income has been mostly predictable, but the past may be just that, the past. Over my career, one could assume the following. First time homebuyer purchase loan, refinance within two to three years, new purchase four to six years, two times refinancing between five and seven years, a purchase between year seven and 10, right? So uh, another move up maybe or a vacation home or something like that. And then another refinance, maybe two refinances, right? And, and this was kind of a predictable cycle. And he said, so what has changed? Now, Everybody knows what has changed, right? If you're a first-time homebuyer who purchased between 2020 and 2022, their rate is now in the twos, maybe the low threes, and the likelihood of refinancing them, I think, is pretty low. And then you think about, okay, well, maybe there is an opportunity for a move-up buy, right? Say four to six years. But affordability has only gotten worse, right? Homes are even more expensive than they were back then. Uh, in, in the vast majority of markets, I think there are maybe one or two markets in which that's not true. So the move-up buyer who bought between 2020 and 2022, they're stuck in that house and you're never going to refinance them, right? And so you have to look at the landscape and say, okay, well, who else is out there? So let's look at someone who purchased in 2015 to 2019. You probably refinance them in 2021. So they're stuck. They're locked in their house. You can't they can't afford to move. And, and it doesn't make a lot of financial sense for them to do so. So no move, no refinance. And 
when you really break it down, it speaks to a collapse in volume, which we've already started to witness in the industry, right? And so I, I do a lot of reporting on this, but most of the $100 million plus producers in 2023 were down about 50% from the prior year. And then, you know, these are the A-list players in the mortgage universe. And if they're down 50%, a lot of others in the tiers below them are doing even worse. And so when you bring that into terms of commission, it's pretty stark. So John mentions in the thread, you know, he used to make $3,000 on a first-time homebuyer loan. So that's the first year. And then he would expect to make another 3K, two to three years down the line on a refi. And then the move up would pay probably $5,000 in year six, another 5K in the refinancing or 10K depending on the cycle between years eight and 10. And then from there, you know, we're talking about another 6K in commission when they buy their proper, as he describes it, big boy house, year 12. Then a couple more $6,000 commissions over the next six years in refis. And when you add that all together, we're talking about $34,000 in lifetime commission from that one buyer over, what, 18, 20 years? And and so there used to be all of the residual volume that accompanied this. So friends and family, they would refer, you know, and say, oh, my, my guy, John, you know, he can, he can do your refi. He'll get you a great rate. It'll be done quickly. They're awesome, et cetera. That doesn't happen as much, right? There's just not as much refi. Uh, business out there. And when you think about the move ups, well, uh, what does inventory look like in your neck that would Sarah, you know, where I am like, it's terrible. (laughs) It's terrible. And there's no reason to think that it's going to get any better anytime soon. And so when you add all of this together, we're talking about just a huge collapse in volume, right? And so what do you do if you're an LO, you know, you've probably already tried to refinance your book of business, but then you get into the fact that most already did, you know, who has, how many people have rates over five or 6%, you know, of the mortgage holders out there, it's probably what, 20, 30% at best, right? It's just not a big number. And, and so it means if you're not really, really preternaturally excellent at getting new referral sources or figuring out another way to find other candidates you're in between a rock and a hard place. And I think it's going to be really difficult to sustain it, which means, you know, proper solid LOs who have been doing this for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, they could be washing out uh, because they just can't find enough of that new business out there to get a deal to make up for the lost move up buyers and refi candidates that just aren't in the wild anymore. And so it's a lot to unpack. It's not a particularly optimistic uh, look into the future, but I, I do think it's a really interesting and, and and thoughtful take on someone who's actually doing business in this marketplace and thinking about how they are, are going to position themselves. I think it's interesting because, um, first of all, the way he he looks at that first time buyer and then holding on to them because, like you know, as as you mentioned, I mean, that's assuming that you can um, that person always wants to come back to you. Um, they may not, you know, they might move in their lifetime, but even more, you know, in our industry, I mean, people people the the rate to get them to come back is very low. Um, obviously someone like John is a very, um, you know, top player. And so we assume that he has a great 
you know, um, operations in place so that he makes sure that they come back to him when, when they have other things. But mostly, I don't know that, I wonder. Right, but the industry average is what, 20 to 30%? Right. So you wonder how many people in the industry even look at it like that, but it is a very, I mean, that's the way you should look at it, right? It's like, this is what this lifetime value of this buyer is to me. One thing that I think that it doesn't really, um, come come to and it's one of the things about demand is that we know that years 2020 to 2024 we have this huge demographic patch of millennials hitting their peak home buying age and so i think you know of course if they could afford it and they, and they were able to in 2021 first part of 2022 great a lot of people were shut out a lot of people were the 24 other buyers that lost out on the home that they put an offer in and then mortgage rates went up but at some point it, you know, life kind of kicks you in the butt. You have to do it, right? You have to to bite the bullet and and do it if you're able. And so that is one bright spot that I think he didn't really address, obviously, because he's just looking at like, you know, people are kind of locked into this low rate and here's, and that makes total sense to me. But I also think that, you know, you're, you're a young parent. At some point, if you had four kids, you would have to move, I would think. If I had four kids, I would have probably fled to Costa Rica at some point and, uh, I just said to, to hell with all this, uh, but but seriously, uh, yeah, I'm good with two. Two is two is the max for me. But um, but 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 getting back to this, yeah, you're absolutely right. There are major demographic headwinds that that don't really get discussed here. You you can't come up with all of the the various factors that will eventually um, you know form our housing market five years from now, ten years from now. There are always all kinds of strange events too that occur, right? Like who predicted COVID in 2018 when all the LOs were down in the dumps and, and looking at their, the rate sheets and thinking, ah, oh, you know, sugar, this is not, this is not looking like my year. And uh, hopefully things get better in 2019. And they did a little bit, but not enough. And then 2020 hits and you go, oh my God, like, you know, I'm printing money. I'm buying a Corvette. I'm having my midlife crisis 10 years earlier than I, that I thought I would. And then suddenly, everything turns to crap, you know, in 2022, 2023. So the, these things, you know, I, I mean, we can predict them to a point. We know roughly kind of where volume normally is. I think the point of this is all that we don't know what the normal will be. Is the normal that we have rates in the sixes and sevens and we're also not building any houses for the next five, 10 years? Then yes, we will truly have a volume crisis for a lot of LOs and also their lenders. We're seeing so much consolidation in the lending space, or we expect to, I should say, um, because you just, you can't run an operation like that quarter after quarter without making your money because either you start dipping into your own, you know, family money to keep up operations or your investors say, to hell with this. What am I doing? You know, losing money every quarter. So there's going to be consolidation one way or another. I think one thing to think about demographically speaking is, the boomers will not be with us forever. This is, you know, the, the old Lion King uh, music could cue right now. Uh, there is a circle to life. They, you know, my, my parents are in their early 70s. I, I hope that they're with us for a couple more decades. But, you know, it's it's not going to be equally measured. Um, there are going to be some that decide to sell and go into retirement homes some are probably just going to get eaten by medical debt, right? And the whole trickle down that one would expect in an inheritance may not even come to fruition, right? That may just get eaten up by the uh, the lack of 
affordable health care in this country. Um, so that's one thing to consider. Another is just, will the remote work revolution really change kind of some of the patterns of home building? We see so many home builders putting down a lot of tract homes in what we call the exurbs, and there's still a lot of exurbs left, and it's easy to build there. It's a lot harder to build in cities, but we're starting to see a little less nimbyism, a little bit more yimbyism. In New York alone, there's a little coalition that's just developed where the default should be, yeah, let's build it, not, well, you know, what if uh, what if we remove that historically significant parking garage? Uh, we can't possibly do that. You know, Gladys will get pissed. Um, it's it's a different conversation now, and we don't know what that conversation is going to look like five years from now, ten years from now. We might have a mini building boom, and and really start to to remedy some of these significant issues that are sticky and have calcified over the decades. But it's it's so hard to say, right? That's a really good point because when we talk about housing affordability, of course, the you know the rate is one part of it, but home prices are the other. So if you had more inventory, you would have you know home prices come down. One of the things that's keeping them so high is there's just very little, very little out there, so that the demand that we do have keeps the prices high. So if you know you had you had those kind of things, and I just um, did a story on the California Association of Realtors had a leadership conference earlier about a month ago. And I just wrote up um, the panel that was there. And, um, you know, California is taking huge actions to try to help their crisis. So far, you haven't seen it really come down to make any difference. But if you look at like what they've done as far as infill housing, if you look at what, um, you know, ministerial approval versus like, yes, everybody gets to decide that the developer doesn't get to, you know, do this here. They have quite, they've done quite a few things. I think, um, the expert uh, from the Turner Center said 140 pieces of legislation since 2016. Unfortunately, we have not seen that really move the needle, but I mean, they're trying, right? And so to your point, it's like, there are things afoot, right? There are things afoot. We'll see what happens. But when I think of the other side too, I think of what about, you've done a ton of reporting on the number of fellows who have left. So not only do we have whole shops, you know, um, shutting down, getting acquired, but we have had an exodus and layoffs and people leaving the industry because of these very things. So at what point is the equilibrium reached? Yes, we have a whole lot less people buying. Don't we also have a whole lot less LOs right now? We do. And just very quickly on the California point, they can pass 200, 300, 400 pieces of legislation. But if they're not fundamentally tackling some of the really, really thorny issues that they put in place purposely, and, you know, not to be cynical, but I think really just to jenny up votes, Prop 13, you have you have literally incentivized entire generations of, of home builders from never leaving. You want a healthy mix of movement in a housing market. You don't want people just sticking around forever and ever, especially when you've made it so difficult through CEQA and, and other kind of local control measures to, to build any new housing, to, to start to replenish what you've lost from never allowing the, the free movement, you know? And so if they really, if, if they abolish Prop 13, we, we can... We'll have a great podcast episode on that. And and credit to California's leaders for at least trying to address it. 
But I think everything is just nibbling at the edges unless you really say, hey, we need to do something really big here. And and to their credit, they've started to have those conversations. But what politician is is crazy enough to say, you know what, I'm going to totally take my name off the board for anybody over the age of like 50. Right. Knowing that they're the most likely voters and and they're going to remember that they're going to galvanize around that, and so it's it's third rail in politics. Um, but I think that's a major major problem that is just going to continue to to present issues for California's cost of living. I, you know, the thing is, people talk a lot about Californians fleeing for other states. You know, oh, we're, we're leaving, we're going to Florida, we're going to Austin, Miami, Austin, we're going to Boise, we're we're taking back, you know, the lifestyle that we thought a lot of people just don't want to leave California because it looks pretty nice, I got to tell you. And if they don't have the burden of the taxes that haven't moved, you know, significantly in 30, 40 years, like, why would they? I mean, it's probably the nicest place to live in America. So I, I think that's really, really problematic. Um, but in, in terms of how this impacts the everyday LO, Look, when I go down the list of the top producers, I've broken this down into to sort of different segments. So the $100 million plus LO, generally speaking, down about 50% from the prior year, 2022, and you don't see a lot of movement there. So they're still in the game. They, in a lot of cases, have their own team. They have their own operations. They're almost like companies within themselves because they're so valuable and their lender has really tried to make it better for them, right? You, your company survives because you're doing business. So if this is your best person in producing business, like you're gonna you're gonna try to make it as easy as possible. You're gonna give them overrides that maybe you don't give to others. You're gonna make sure that they're happy, that they're getting their retention bonus, that their their head isn't turned every time another lender says, hey, you know, we've got this product and we've got, you know, this sort of setup. You can move to a P&L and you can do that or this or whatever, but they don't typically move because they've got a good thing and they know they've got a good thing. You drop down to the 50 to 100 million, you see a little bit more movement. It's not a ton. These are still, again, we're talking like the top 1% of LOs out there. So we went from like the 0.05 to the, you know, to the 1%. Uh, maybe even even less, like we're talking fractions of a percentage here. And they're still doing really well. But once you start getting into that like $10 million to $50 million producer, that's where you see a lot more movement. That's where you see a lot more people saying, hey, I need to change some of my tactics. I need to rethink some of my strategy because I'm now losing a lot of those loans to the tranche above me. Uh, I'm starting to lose loans to people who work at lenders that are more aggressive in some of their tactics and lowering the cost to the borrower, whether that's me taking a pay cut as the yellow or pricing exceptions from the lender. So we're seeing some have coined this as a race to the bottom. I, I don't personally see it that way, but but you need to make the affordability problem not as problematic and as a mortgage lender, there's only so much you can do about that. You either get much more efficient as a business, right? So UWM is the gold standard there. And that's a totally different model than most distributed retailers. 
they can't cut all of those layers in the middle. Somebody's got to get paid. And so how do you cut it otherwise? Either the LO is going to take a haircut or the lender themselves is going to say, okay, we used to be comfortable with 250 basis points on this loan. We're going to have to be comfortable with 150 to make this work because 150 is better than zero. And you're seeing all this consolidation. You're seeing all these lenders say 12 quarters of really bad business. We, we got to, we got to do something. Either you shut down, find an investor or you find someone to acquire your company. And so Academy just moved off the board. They found a, an acquirer in Guild who was rumored to have been, you know, sniffing around and interested in buying them a couple of years ago when things were just starting to get pretty dicey. So in a lot of cases, these are familiar relationships. These are deals that take a couple of years to really, I guess, get done. I don't know if you could call them a deal if it's something that initially you know, gets off the ground two years ago, but um, almost any lender that's between a billion and five billion is probably up for sale in some way, shape, or form. And that's because there's pressure on everyone all the way down, and even the best LOs are down 50%, and the best LOs are not working at the $5 billion chops. It's a really great point. And, you know, it, it reminds me too, that like, it's more expensive to originate a loan now than it I think has ever been. We used to write stories, um, back when I first started, I was like, uh, you know, it's, it's, a uh, what, what'd we say? It's like, you know, outrage. It's an, uh, the cost to originate is outrageous. And we like even more outrageous now, the most outrageous. I mean, we just couldn't get the headlines to be, to really reflect it because it just kept going up, up and up. And so when you're talking about this post from John, you know, he's like, you could say, okay, I'm going to make this much money, you know, at, on this loan and all that stuff. Part of the other calculus is that it's just so expensive to do a loan, despite the fact that we have all this technology, which I can tell you from the beginning was supposed to make things, you know, less expensive. That was the promise that was, you know, that was always made when it comes to technology. And it probably has made some elements of it less expensive. Certainly having AI and, and other tools out there does create some efficiencies. I, I can tell you that a lot of the LOSs and the CRMs are better tools than they were five years ago, 10 years ago. I remember reporting when I first started here at Housing Wire, there was a big lender, a top depository, and a ton of their people literally used pencil and paper to do a ton of their business, probably pen, not pencil, but but you, you catch my drift here. And, and so I, I do think that that it helps. It certainly helps, but that's not enough to account for all of the increased compliance costs. There are so many lenders that are terrified of CFPB audits and DOJ looking and saying, hey, have you done enough business with minorities in this census tract? Or have you properly provided enough, you know, if you're a depository, it's a little bit different. And, you know, do you have a branch in this in this zip code? And uh, have you specifically created a program to target minority homebuyers here? And, and this isn't to suggest that it's entirely about, um, you know, lending to underprivileged or historically disadvantaged groups. Compliance costs come in lots of different forms. Um, but these are some of the things that lenders are scared of. And so they're they're trying, I really do think they're trying to make sure that when they do get that audit, that they have followed 
procedure that it's, it's almost like a scientific um, process, you know, okay, we, we, we got an inquiry, here's how we handle it. You, but that adds a lot of costs, right? And we have seen a lot of people in ops get laid off. There are, I can't tell you how many underwriters and processors that follow me on LinkedIn or that I chat with regularly on LinkedIn or, in, you know, on, on other platforms. And they have either given up the prospect of ever getting another job again in mortgage or they're running on 18, 19, 20 months, um, some of them even longer, and would love to get back into it because they'd done it for 10, 15, 20 years and, and they were good at it. They were really good at it. And they just, there's no future for them. And, and you know, the sad thing is there's going to be even more consolidation, uh, I think, on the sales side because we've run through the numbers before, but there's only probably, what, 50,000 loan officers who are doing enough sustainable business, doing more than a couple loans a month that you can reliably say, you know what, this person is very, very likely to be doing the same amount of business a year from now, even if conditions don't improve. And that's enough for us as the lender and it's enough for them and their family to make that work. But, you know, the next, the next stop on, on the layoff express is going to be the sales staff. If you're an LO who isn't producing, even if you've been doing this 10 years and you haven't figured out a way to find new business, I think the clock is ticking for you. Boy, it's just such a it's just such a hard time in this business. And I think, you know, the point um, that we were making with that John was making is that it's not just like I mean, the, this affects everybody, even even if you're a top LO, you're looking at like you have to change some things because it's just not it's just not working. And, and the future doesn't look, you know, different. That said, as you said, you know, we never know what's coming down the pike. We don't know the the changes that um, you know, could make a big difference here. But but what we know today, it's kind of kind of rough. Yeah, and I think in distributed retail, you're gonna see a lot more flattening. There are so many layers of management and you've got branch managers and divisional and regionals, and you've got, you know, all kinds of other people sort of within that uh framework, you know, operationally just on the sales side, and I, I think that's gonna get cut back pretty significantly over the next couple of years. I also think if we see rates remain in the high sixes, low sevens for the next, you know, couple quarters, the level of consolidation is going to be probably bigger than we've seen since 0809, right? Uh, I, I just don't see a path. If you're not a publicly traded company, you're going, your reps and warrants, they're already probably on the edge in a lot of cases. Not a lot of private lenders are going to give you money to sustain operations. It's going to be really difficult for you to raise any money from new investors. And unless you're particularly loaded and willing to sit through what could be a new paradigm, uh, which sounds very risky, um, I, I just don't think that there's there's no lifeboat. You know, you either have to get acquired by a bigger company. I think they're probably going to be maybe 15 big retail lenders that end up um, distributed retail lenders that end up emerging from all this if rates remain where they are and inventory doesn't rebound and they're just going to keep snapping up these smaller 
lenders. And we're probably going to see a couple mega deals as well because the pressures are, are pretty universal. Like even the best, best resourced companies that we talk about, they're feeling the pain. Um, they have the cash to avoid making some of the tougher decisions that their colleagues do need to make. And, and they're going to end up benefiting from it because everybody, you know, they, they serve the market. You serve at the market's pleasure. And, and if the market's really, uh, really particularly difficult that year or that cycle, then there are going to be fewer people who, who can fill that need. Interesting. You know, back when um, it was sort of the craze for mortgage companies to go public, we had a lot of questions about that. Like, who does this make sense for? How, you know, from the investor side is the, is the part that I couldn't figure out because I'm like, you know, yeah, I mean, you're at the peak right now. But if you're one of those companies and you went public, you got all that cash, you were in a much better position than anybody else. So, you know, understandably that they're, you know, they were looking ahead saying this is, this is uh, how they're going to be well positioned for this market. Yeah. And and you look at who's still standing. So HomePoint is off the board, right? That, that was, that was a very promising lender in, in wholesale and Flavia Ferland Nunez. Uh, and, and I've, I've done a lot of work on, on kind of examining what happened there. And, and they certainly didn't benefit from their ownership, their private equity backed. And um, they just never really got off the ground and they were hamstrung by a lot of costs and didn't have the capital to really, um, to really succeed. And, and they had some operational problems as well with underwriting and, and you know, the, the wheels kind of fell off toward the end, but, but that was a big one. You look at some of the others, most of the stocks are trading in the $2, $3 range. Some are even lower than that. I don't even know if better.com is still like <laughs> traded at this point. I'm joking. I, I know that they're traded, but you know, they're, they're, they're at like 50 cents or something like that, like a comically low figure. And, and you look at who's done well and it's really the, big companies that have a lot of servicing. And so it's the Mr. Coopers, it's the Penny Max. Uh, Rocket has a lot of servicing. They're, they're a bit of a different animal. I think servicing is going to, it's going to determine who survives and who doesn't. If you're a big lender and you have very little in servicing, you're basically selling it all to free up cash because you need the liquidity and you're just above your covenants with the GSEs a couple bad quarters and then you fall below and you may not make it. But if you're Loan Depot, if you're Rocket, if you're UW, UWL mostly sells their servicing, but um, you know, if you're any number of other companies, you also then have the future refi opportunities that come from that. Right. As we talked about earlier in the program, only a 20 to 30% recapture rate. Right. And so Mr. Cooper's probably pretty well positioned there. Right. Penny Mac as well. And uh, you have all that money coming in from from your servicing. So if you've got eighty something billion in servicing in in your MSRs in UPV, you know, I mean, you're probably kicking off tens of million dollars a month, and that's enough to keep your your business going, even if originations are a net negative for you. And and that's that's just something you can't compete with. Well, James, we have run out of time. Um, wish it was a more optimistic episode, but it is good to kind of look at that and and also, uh, you know, just look at how John Downs was outlining that and and how other people might feel that same way. We're keeping an eye on it, of course. You know, fingers crossed that the Fed will will pivot and 
you know, help in some ways, but that's not going to solve everything. It would, it would make a big difference, but it's not going to solve everything. So I know you, you and your newsroom will keep a, an eye on this, but thanks for coming on and, uh, and talking us through it. Thanks very much, Sarah. Thank you for listening and thank you to our sponsor, Truve. If you haven't already, we'd love for you to take a minute to rate the show and leave a comment and make sure to tune in tomorrow for more news and insight.